Welcome to another episode of Byzantium and Friends. Hi, I'm your host, Anthony Kalelos. So we've talked in previous episodes about how scholars pick the categories of analysis that they use in order to write history. Um, and some of those categories come directly from the sources for many given society. They speak very loudly about certain kinds of themes. So in Byzantium, this might be ascetic renunciation or imperial power. And they they take us by the hand and they draw us to those topics and generate very large bibliographies um, that work, you know, from within the sources about topics that were ostensibly central to that society. Now, to schematize a bit, let's go to the opposite extreme of that kind of spectrum where we take a concept that is not talked about by that society, but which we understand to be important for historical analysis, such as, for example, economics, in the case of Byzantium I mentioned in the podcast. And we apply that because we believe that that is important, um, even if the subjects whom we're studying were not aware of such a concept, they were not aware that the world could be seen and studied in that way, certainly not in a systematic way. And now both of these approaches, um, obviously they work together for the most part, but they carry within them certain dangers and risks. Um, in the case of letting the sources dictate our categories to us, it's we run the risk of being misled by our sources into looking at something that may in the end not have been that important for the working of that society, but which was overblown in the way in which it imagined itself. Uh, so for example, I, I believe something like that about both ascetic renunciation and imperial power, that the texts that we have about them are designed to represent those things in a certain way, but not necessarily in a way that is historically accurate. And the other extreme, we run the risk of imposing on a past society a concept that is anachronistic, that is, that it doesn't necessarily relate, um, that it is something that we're projecting from, based on our own experience, onto the past. Now, of course, most historical scholarship falls somewhere between those two sort of theoretical extremes. Well, it's my great pleasure today to have a guest, uh, Christian Lass of the University of Manchester, who has pioneered the study of disability in antiquity and Byzantium. And I really do mean the word pioneered in a strong sense. There was almost no scholarship on this topic before um, he began to uh, write his own and invite others to contribute uh, to collected volume on disability. I agree with him that disability is a hugely important category for us to study uh, in all periods of human history, it is something that affects um, a lot of people, most people, in many, many different ways, keeping in mind, of course, that it takes different forms in different societies and may not even be recognized as a category in some society. And Byzantium does not seem to have had that, that social category. Um, and so we are reduced to sorting through large amounts of information um, and trying to reconstruct um, a history of disability and the meanings of disability, um, the re its representation in Byzantine society from the ground up. Now, Christian is very subtle in the way he goes about this, so I, I think he uh, manages to avoid some of the uh, dangers in, in using this concept. So 
He does not take sources at face value when they represent people and their various um, afflictions and disabilities and infirmities and illnesses. He's very careful to try to understand what the textual politics are, you know, what, what, what agenda is being served in the text by this representation. Um, he also keeps a very flexible and broad approach to what might count as a disability, and I think that's very important as we're just getting started um, in this very interesting uh, new area of research. I highly recommend his articles, which are mentioned in the um, description of the podcast episode. I also want to apologize in advance. The quality of the audio is sometimes not ideal. Um, I, I uh, try to work with my guests uh, to, so they obtain uh, good microphones. Under the current circumstances, uh, what we've been living through under the past couple of months, that's not always possible. I've tried to fix up the audio using the all the dials and settings on the program, but there's still a bit of reverberation. Anyway, bear, bear with us. Uh, here, then, is my conversation with Christian Lies. Hello, Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to have you on the podcast because you've really done something uh, innovative here, and you're, you're a pioneer. Uh, you're a pioneer in the study of disability in, um, in antiquity and in the Middle Ages and in Byzantium. This is not an area that has been studied much. And I've always been interested in it, but there was never anything to read. And you've suddenly made available all these studies and an edited volume and, and so forth. Um, and so I really hope that other people will follow um, and explore this area more. Um, and I should say that, so you've written on various aspects of disability um, and you've edited a volume and our mutual friend, Stefano Sostimiadis has written a paper in there on disability in Byzantium. So I recommend that as well to our listeners. Uh, but I remember when you had asked him to write that and he and I were talking about it, <laughs> he was... <laughs> He didn't know where to begin exactly. Like there, there's, there's nothing, we're making this up. Um, and so it's very exciting in that way. Uh, so let me just start by asking a general question. What are the main difficulties that we have to overcome in studying this question of disability? Well, I, will, I always like to say that uh, it's kind of like uh, solving a, a puzzle and uh, putting uh, many, many little pieces together. Um, because one of the main difficulties in studying disabilities in the past or in the Byzantine past is that uh, there wasn't really a concept of disability. So you can't even start looking for a word that would uh, actually match with, with our disability. So what you have to do is just read, read and read thousands of pages perhaps. And of course you can use search engines and so on and so on on all sorts of words that sort of denote things we would nowadays call uh, disabilities. And this is just, it's fantastic to do so because all these little pieces and all, all these little pieces of evidence just give us uh, a picture of a society and, and they sort of reveal, I guess, vital issues of uh, a certain society, how people cope with difficulties, how people uh, cope with their or others' impairments and so on. So it's really worth trying to, to solve this puzzle. Yeah, but uh, are there also just impediments in our own mentality when approaching this kind of question. I'm, I'm thinking, so for example, if you look at Byzantium or antiquity, there isn't a fully formed concept of, say, economics. And nevertheless, mm -hmm. modern scholars have invested, you know, 
a huge amount of effort in talking about reconstructing ancient economies, despite the fact that our sources don't guide us there naturally. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this ability, which the same sort of faces the same conceptual obstacle that hasn't received the same amount of attention. And I'm wondering if there's an, there's an aspect of um, like um, there's a marginalization, like these are people or groups that were in some ways marginalized or not looked at carefully or fairly or accurately by the, the authors of our sources and that modern scholars, we've just kind of tended to go along with that. And we look at people in power and not people in the margins. Like, is, is there an element of that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there absolutely is that element uh, which you explained so well already. Um, I would say that um, the study of um, social outsiders is always a thing that somehow comes later. If you just look at where I started, so, so mostly uh, Greek and, and Roman antiquity, also this attention to, to children or to people with disabilities, women, and so on and so on. This starts in the, in the 70s, in the 80s, and I have to say that, that for disabilities it only started, well, like some, some 10 years ago. And you see very much the same thing, of course, in, uh, in Byzantine studies. So um, uh, scholars were mostly uh, interested in uh, politics, of course, and emperors and, and, and battles and then economy and, and, and structures and so on and so on. And, and, and all these marginalized people, they sort of uh, um, disappear in such studies. And it is uh, really a kind of a recent turn that, that people also... Uh, pay attention to, to these outsiders. It's just a fascinating thing to do because you always, well, you sort of, you think that you can actually recognize things and at the same time you see also that this was a very uh, different world from ours. Yes, and um, they're not often, uh, sometimes they're not outsiders as such, um, as that they are people who for one reason or another don't conform to a normative order uh, I mean, mm -hmm. they might be in the palace, right? They might be very rich people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, anybody can have a disability of some kind. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, our texts like to either represent a normative order or understand the world through it. And so these kinds of people, you have to look for them in the, in the cracks and in the margins, as you do. Absolutely. absolutely. You always yeah. find them in the margins. That's, yeah. that's right. Um, so... In, in your articles um, and chapters, you've drawn attention to the problem of uh, retroactive medical diagnoses <laughs> that, we, mm -hmm. that, that modern scholars sometimes engage in when confronted with uh, medieval disabilities. Um, what, what are the problems with that kind of approach? Well, let me put this very simple, uh, simply. Um, these authors... Yeah, most of the time, they're not uh, medical doctors. And even when they are physicians or medical doctors, their categories are quite different from our modern uh, medical categories. So um, an exercise I once did for my book on um, disabilities and the disabled in the Roman Empire is uh, trying to diagnose um, the Emperor Caligula as a present-day psychiatrist would do it. And then you would have to say that this guy was, well, that he was a maniac, that he was a, a sadist, that he was a spendthrift, so somebody who spent uh, immense amounts of, of, of money, uh, somebody who suffered from, from different phobias and so on and so on. 
But this is actually not what is behind these ancient biographies on Caligula. Um, there they want to point to a sort of decline which was there in his dynasty, namely the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And, and so the, the problem of retrospective diagnosis is, is really um, a very huge problem, I'd say, for, uh, for everything that relates mental health. And uh, in my article on, on the Byzantine emperors, I mentioned the, the famous case, of course, of the uh, Emperor Justin uh, II, who was supposed to be uh, mad, utterly mad. He wanted to uh, throw himself out of the window. Uh, he would just make fun, can you imagine, of the, the pallium, so the head of the... Um, the hat of the uh, uh, patriarch, um, he would just creep around like 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 a child, uh, make uh, animal sounds, and so on and so on. And so again, one could just read these texts and, as a modern doctor, try to say what is actually going on here. What would be his uh, disease in the uh, diagnostical uh, manual of, of, um, of, of psychiatric diseases, but that's just not the way it works. So the, um, um, the biographers of uh, Justin II, they start from a very hostile tradition. Uh, one of them, John of Ephesus, was uh, a monophysite, and so uh, Justin was just an emperor who went against these monophysites. And uh, what you get here is, is, is somebody just uh, wanting to explain that this, this emperor, he was against our faith, against our belief, and he was uh, sort of a madman because of this. And I'm sure that, that uh, there must have been mental issues there. I'm, I'm quite sure that, that uh, Justin must have suffered a lot also from a mental point of view. Um, but at the same time, we just can't read all these these funny anecdotes also, just uh, as, if, as if they were all true facts or as if it were a diagnosis. It's just not like this. Right, because there's this element of literary representation. Um, and, and you're quite right. In, in John of Ephesus, the, the they're quite incredible stories. From, Very incredible, really, yeah. Yeah, from Justin performing self-surgery Mm -hmm. um, to his being wheeled around through the palace on this little cart that had a throne on it for, just to calm him down. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're right. There's this, there's a tradition in some um, ca uh, categories of Christian literature, which is how much those who opposed our group suffered either mm -hmm. like, you, like from Lactantius about the persecutors, like they all died horribly. They had worms coming out of their yes. body and, Yes, right? and that's um, what happens when you persecute Christianity. And absolutely, yeah. And and John of Ephesus seems to be doing something like that. Like this is how this is what happens to people who oppose, you know, our understanding of you know Christian doctrine. Yeah. So so uh, a good example would also be the death of the heretic Arius, of course, who kind oh, of yes. uh, died uh, from a lethal diarrhea, to say so. So this is of course the idea that that well, just all this bullshit to say so which was in him just came out you know exactly. so that's very much the, the same thought there yeah yeah he he exploded in a public latrine indeed yes um but on the other hand we have some sources like procopius of caesarea when he's describing the plague and he's trying to give a thucydidean accurate description of the symptoms and mm -hmm. he's very good like he 
Curdy accurately describes the symptoms of the bubonic plague, and he identifies them well enough that even before the um, identification of the um, of the pathogen, um, Ersenia pestis, it was pretty yeah. clear that this was a bubonic plague related to the one of the Black Death in the 14th century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it is possible to get some good, um, you know, descriptions of symptoms that we can work with. Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with this. So um, uh, I never, so, so some scholars would say, we can't really know for sure because this is all rhetorics and this is all discourse and so on and so on. This is a thing I do not believe. Um, so uh, to go back to Caligula or to Justin, uh, something was obviously wrong there. Yeah, and there must have been things going on. And of course, there's a sort of rhetorical ex exaggeration and so on and so on. But we're all human beings, you know, so we share the same bodies. And, and the, the, you have to uh, start also from a sort of uh, similarity. And um, for ancient scholarship, there's a famous series of articles by uh, Daniel Gurevich. He's a French scholar. And so all these articles are called Chronique Anachronique, uh, <laughs> which is something like Anachronistical Chronicle. And it's really good. So, so they, they always uh, they start from a sort of modern medical phenomenon and uh, want to look at how this phenomenon was described in the past. Uh, so for Byzantine times, one can think, of course, about gout, which is which is often described and which is often connoted with, with luxury and, and an uh, excessive lifestyle. But at the same time, you may imagine that uh, these people might suffer from gout as people do nowadays. That's for sure. So yes, I, I, yeah. I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I, I think that, yes, there's literary representation going on in the text, but that doesn't always go all the way down. I like I, I oh. believe in, in in factual reality completely. Absolutely. So do I. So I'm glad we agree on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about this in uh, connection with the texts, but were there some general social ideologies or so, social attitudes that conditioned how people reacted uh, to disability? Like, can you give some examples of that? Now, it's always very difficult, as you know, just to generalize about things like this. I would say that in general, people had a kind of a relaxed attitude towards what we would call uh, disabilities, that this was just a fact of life and that just uh, that people just had to cope and, uh, to, with it and just had to deal with it. Um, so one may refer to, to many um, um, bioarchaeological studies as they are called where you can see in people's bones that they actually must have uh, suffered considerably but at the same time you can see that they were just that they were just involved and part of the um, uh, labor process so in a way they were not treated as very different people and they just had to uh, well just just work just as as, as the others do um, at the same time, of course, uh, in the text, you can discover some uh, different uh, layers and uh, attitudes and, and ideologies also concerning disabilities. One I found uh, striking in, in the Byzantine sources is the sort of uh, metaphorical meaning of uh, disability, uh, which means actually that when times are bad, and there are people with disabilities, these people can somehow uh, be blamed or can somehow be viewed as 
uh, well, symptom uh, or a sign of these bad times. Um, there's a there's a famous um, anecdote with Leo the Deacon on um, um, a couple of Siamese twins, uh, where you see actually that um, in some towns they will just be uh, admired, so just people want to see them, and, and these are two fine young adult men, and just people want to see this 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 miracle, this strange occurrence. And then when, when a, a crisis is emerging, then, then uh, they just have to flee because uh, they're sort of regarded as, uh, as a bad omen. Another attitude I, think, um, I may think about is, of course, the connection with sin. So that, in a way, you are to blame uh, for your disabilities. Um, uh, and so... Uh, you can also be uh, held responsible for sins or errors that were committed, for instance, by your parents already, which is a very ancient Greek thought already. There's, there, there's a book about the crippled kings of ancient Greek by da Greece by Daniel Ogden, where you already find this thought with, with Herodotus. But it's very pronounced, I'd say, in, um, in Byzantine sources. And another attitude that also struck me in the Byzantine sources is um, um, the idea of, or, or the fact of mutilation. So much more than killing their political opponents, uh, Byzantines resorted to mutilating them. Um, so one might imagine uh, mutilation was also um, uh, punishment often uh, inflicted on uh, criminals. So one might imagine that uh, somebody who for some reason or another had a kind of mutilated appearance, that he might have been connected with um, people being punished, um, criminals and so on. Yes, the mutilation is a very interesting case uh, in Byzantium. So by mutilation, we're talking about um, either blinding is very common or cutting off of the nose or ears um, or for mm -hmm. many crimes it was cutting off the hand or something like that. Yeah. Um, and this is sometimes an explicit provision in the law um, and sometimes it's done uh, after a rebellion or a plot has been uncovered or something like that. And so, so sometimes I'm not entirely sure that the purpose of it was to punish like we, we see it that way like you did something bad and I'm gonna do something mm -hmm. bad to you so that you like I don't know you you understand now you know how wrong what you did was um, but and and to be sure it functioned that way but it might also have functioned as a way of sort of socially marking someone as having suffered and you know like you are now not a sort of full member like you're not in good standing in the community you're marked as having mm -hmm. done something dishonorable you right um and, and there's another interpretation that goes around in byzantine studies sometimes which is that this was designed to preclude them from gaining the throne if they're a rival for the throne right yes um, absolutely yeah mm -hmm. so i'm cutting off your nose because this is a, a disqualification somehow and I'm not entirely sure how it's supposed to function as a disqualification. I mean, I've never found any texts that really explain that. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember when I was in grad school, like I either read or heard or whatever this idea that an emperor had to be a sort of, not a perfect physical specimen, but a 
a whole physical specimen. Like you couldn't be a eunuch or you couldn't be missing a nose or whatever. I, but I have never found that in any source. No, and, exactly. And, yeah, and we have an emperor without a nose who became, who regained the throne. This uh, is Justinian II. Yeah. And a blind emperor, uh, at least two. Um, yeah. And so it could happen. Uh, even after they had suffered that fate. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. So um, the idea that an emperor or a king or whatever needs to be perfect, um, I've often wondered to you, you find this from, from, from the Old Testament up, up to uh, modern England and uh, in Islamic thought, and, and it is often said also about Byzantine emperors and so on and so on. And I guess that this is a sort of ideal, perhaps. Uh, anthropologists would also say that um, in various uh, people or tribes, the idea exists that when the king is healthy, um, uh, everybody in the tribe is healthy. So perhaps there might be a thing like this, so, so perfection and ideal, aesthetics and so on and so on. But in reality, as you jo so justly mentioned, there, there's, there's many instances of, of, uh, of uh, emperors who were, who were not uh, in perfect health at all, and some would really be what we call uh, disabled. Um, and still then, they will just, they're all sorts of, practical solutions to that, you know, um, and they just try to cope with life as it is. Yeah, I remember, was it Michael IV who was epileptic mm -hmm. and whenever yes, he, he was, would have yeah. an episode, he had attendants mm -hmm. that would raise up a kind of screen around him so that nobody yes. could see. Yes. Indeed, and, and he was also very afraid to, to be close to his wife because also she wasn't supposed to see his uh, seizures. Um, I remember also about Michael IV, there's an anecdote about him uh, being on a horse during a parade and then um, uh, having a seizure and he just falls on the ground and everybody sees it and the guards just want to immediately, uh, well, just um, take him away so that nobody could see the, the incident. But this is a, a thing I often wondered about also, who was actually, who could see the emperor? Yeah? And these things change very much, I think, in the beginning of the 20th century, when you have like radio, television, and so on. Think about um, a king or an emperor or whatever uh, stuttering. So this becomes really an, a huge problem when you have to speak like live for television or for radio, and, and, and everybody's just seeing you. And, 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 but who would know how the emperor actually looked like? And who would be allowed to see the emperor? That's always the big question, of course. You would see him somewhere at distance, and uh, perhaps you wouldn't even recognize him, you know? Or only see him on coins or, or, or pictures. Yeah, I, in Constantinople, the place to see him, I suppose, would be in the Hippodrome. Which is always far away, of course. It, it is. It's, it's yes. in a box, he's somewhere sitting there. Yes. Um, I've never, perhaps you may know, but, but I've never seen a Byzantine text on this, but I know that for the Roman Emperor Claudius, it was said that uh, when he was in the imperial box in the uh, amphitheater or the circus, then he, he would wear a cloak or something so that people could surely not see him very well. And it's always at a distance already, so, right. Yeah, um, I, I believe it. So different from... from 
in the um, in the, um, the Hippodrome in Constantinople, the Imperial Box. Now we call it an Imperial Box, and you may imagine something from like a Viennese opera house, but it it it, it wasn't. It was a uh, at least two-story building of its own that was mm -hmm. placed within the stands. It had mm -hmm. its own reception hall. It had a dome on top. It was a complete building. Mm -hmm. And I think the emperor would be on the top floor and is probably recessed. So I don't, and it would be, so there would be a shadow. I don't think that you, from the stands, yeah. the regular stands, you'd be able to see the emperor unless Not he came forward. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sure you couldn't. That's that's uh, that's also you have the, these Roman stories about um, uh, emperors going out at night and doing all sorts of things they were not supposed to do. Who would know who, that? Who would know this guy was the emperor? You know, that's just uh, you could just get away with it. Um, <laughs> well, so it might be helpful in case of a disability that perhaps not uh, everybody would see it or notice it. Yeah. So going back to, I mean, you mentioned sin. Um, and seeing disability as a punishment for sin and, and uh, the, uh, the integrity of the emperor's body and all of these kinds of things. And I have this very mixed picture in my head that for the most part in Byzantine society, disabled people were, were helped. I mean, they, I think it was a generally compassionate society when it came to these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if there was some sort of controversy, if you got involved in either a theological dispute or a po political dispute, then very suddenly the knives would come out and these kinds of things could be held against you. And I think that's where you find the rhetoric of, of um, physical disability or physical attributes being used against someone. Um, it, it's precisely in those kinds of polemical contexts, not in the normal course mm -hmm. of social life. Yes, absolutely. I, that, that's that kind of the picture I attitude I also uh, referred to in the beginning already. Absolutely, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about physiognomy because this is a, this is a, mm, a science, let's say, mm -hmm. um, that most people today aren't familiar with. Um, but it, it might have impacted the experiences of people with disabilities. So what is physiognomy? Yeah, physiognomy is uh, actually a reading a person's body. So I just look at you, I look at your eyes, your ears, the shape of your body, and so on and so on. And this tells me something about your inner character. Yeah? And this is a science which was very popular already in, in uh, Greek antiquity, in Roman antiquity, and which, by the way, um, in, in, in a way also... Um, forms the, the roots of, of um, so-called scientific racism, um, because also in the 19th and the 20th century, you have these ideas of, well, we can actually read the people's skulls, etc., etc., and this tells us something about intelligence of races and so on and so on. So this has a very long uh, history also of physiognomy. Um, now, uh, physiognomy has been very important in the tradition of um, the biographies of uh, Roman emperors, and uh, it is sure also that it, uh, that it had an uh, importance um, in Byzantine times. Um, and some scholars have referred to what they call uh, negative physiognomics or negative physiognomy. Uh, this means actually uh, when I see non-regular or irregular things to, to, to say so uh, in your body, on your body, does it also refer to irregular uh, features in your character? Uh, what would be examples? Um, there, there's quite some um, stories about people being uh, excessively fat 
and this is uh, often connoted with with uh, a luxurious lifestyle and uh, not being able to uh, to control yourself. Uh, same goes for gout. So gout is is a uh, sort of impairment, a very painful thing too, uh, which is often also uh, connoted with uh, you not being in control uh, of yourself and therefore possibly potentially also you being uh, a bad uh, emperor. You know? Uh, color of the eyes. There's one um, one emperor Anastasios who is called uh, Deep Coros, so who had actually two different um, so so two eyes with uh, two different uh, colors, and also there this can be hmm, this sort of suspect thing, you know, it can be revealing about of his character. Are there physiognomic texts that talk about uh, people with different colored eyes? There is that one. There's an article about um, about uh, Anastasios being dikoros, and as far as I remember, um, the eyes are uh, the eyes are very important in yeah. physiognomics um, because the eyes are supposed. There's one text saying that the eyes are the the gate. I guess it was to the to the soul. So eyes are a very crucial thing. Um, yeah. So it might be because we have like two different. I imagine that physiognomics is more important than we think um, in the in our text because we have when you have a physical description of someone, especially of their face, mm-hmm. they're not overtly gesturing toward that science. But no. mm-hmm. I have the suspicion that many of our authors expect their readers to yes. like know some of the basics, and it's that and yeah. like. You know what I mean. You you know how to interpret yeah. this. What I'm saying, absolutely, right? absolutely. Um, um, sometimes, so people have tried to read um, Roman uh, emperors' biographies uh, along with the physiognomical treatises and just saying, well, this has to point to this and this has to point to this. But that's not really how it works. It's more like uh, the general um, image which is created and and. Some things might be behind there, like if you say, well, uh, he had like long hair, I don't know what, and then people would say, ah, yes, yes, we sort of understand what that means, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we don't have that background, so we sometimes miss the, mm-hmm. you know, the cues that the sure, texts are giving sure. us. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, um, yeah, I can't remember any specific cases now, uh, but, uh, you know, it's like... Um, like the way it used to be with flowers, there used to be a whole uh, etiquette and protocol about well, if you give this flower, it means that. If you give that flower, you know, this yeah. color means this. And like in the 19th century, Europeans, uh, you know, were more attuned to the significance of those distinctions. And, and we've kind of lost that now. Like, yeah. you know, I, there is the, the example I think of is, is, well, a book which was popular in late antiquity and, and surely also in, in Byzantine times so the, the life of Aesop so the fable writer Aesop and so the first chapter has just an extended description of how Aesop looked like and this is his pot belly it is uh, 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 well there's all sorts of strange things with him and so I think that the first 20 lines are just adjectives describing Aesop's body you know and there must be all sorts of connotations there of uh, who, he, who he really was, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, they're similar to the um, the physical descriptions of the heroes in Homer that became popular in in later yeah. Byzantium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's full of these these uh, very specific and, and kind of long Greek words, also really meant to describe a people's uh, physical appearance. So there's all tradition there. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about nicknames. Um, do because the Byzantines had a <laughs> healthy tradition of using nicknames, yeah. inventing nicknames for people, especially those in power. Um, so mm -hmm. some of them reflect or point to physical features and even disabilities, right? And you mentioned Dikoros, for example. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. It was you, of course, Anthony, who wrote about the Byzantines having perhaps the most irreverent uh, culture towards uh, uh, emperors, which with which I would uh, uh, totally agree. So, and, and an example of this are these nicknames. Uh, so, I mentioned the, the Dikoros already. There's uh, in the beginning of the ninth century. There's Michael the Second, who's called Pselos. So, this is actually the the stammerer. Yeah, there's uh, a John Comenius who is called the Fat Man or the Fat, and actually um, Michael the Second's uh, grandson, who is Michael the Third. Uh, so he was actually called the Drunk or the Drunkard. So um, yeah, indeed you have all these uh, nicknames, and the most uh, significant, perhaps, and that's even novels about this is of course uh, Justinian II who was called Rhinoctmetos so the one with uh, the nose uh, sliced or the nose cut off so there are all, there are all these uh, epithets which uh, is a tradition also which goes back to, to Greek and Roman times already yeah and uh, there's some weird ones that we always want to be politically correct, of course, and we would ne never ever point to physical features of, of, of an opponent or a colleague or whatever. But already Cicero would uh, write that you can perfectly do so if you want to make a good joke. Yeah? Yeah. So. Yeah. Byzantine humor was often cruel. It is. Uh, yeah. And very directly targeted people's weaknesses. It is. And physical appearance for mockery, like that's just. Um, and beyond emperors, I mean, there are individuals who are called um, the bent. Yes, absolutely. Right, yeah. probably some sort of hunchback. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then there are funnier ones like the pumpkin. I don't know what that supposed to mean. <laughs> Perhaps the head or something. We we don't know, <laughs> but it's it's true. There's all these um, yeah, people. I imagine also that, that people would often point also at others when they have like other bodily features and just sort of stare at them, which we all are not supposed to do, of course. We already teach our children not to do this, but it's, uh, it's a very different world and, and, and uh, things are just named as they were, you know, and they just uh, use all these uh, nicknames even for emperors. Yes, I mean, I, I much prefer the world that we live in on that point mm -hmm. <laughs> and Obviously, I, sure. no i cringe when i think of this kind of environment where you know someone who has some distinctive physical appearance or disability is just mocked for the mm -hmm. amusement of others like i that just it's just painful to think about um just this is interesting also as far as i know we don't have any sources of people themselves speaking about this trauma or this experience yeah? Right. So that's always the, uh, a thing I would so much like to know, but we just don't, as far as I know, we don't have any of these uh, texts. 
Every now and then you have um, uh, philosophers saying that uh, when people make a joke of you, you just have to reply with another joke and that's the way to cope with it. And there's a sort of stoic discourse also about uh, these bodily things not being essential and not being important. So, so there might be something behind this of people uh, searching for some consolation. But um, as far as I know, there's, there's not really any Byzantine writer just... Uh, writing about how it was to have this disability or how it was to be named as such, the fat man or the drunkard or whatever. That's a very interesting point. I hadn't, I never thought about that. So it's a challenge, challenge accepted. Um, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll think about, but you're right. I mean, I, nothing comes to mind. Mm-hmm. All, all I can think of are cases where someone has had an illness, mm-hmm. but has recovered from it. They yes, will talk about absolutely. it. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah. not something from which like, you can't recover, like being blinded or lose, you know, losing an arm or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's interesting. I I'll wonder, to... there might be um, uh, in the sort of ascetic tradition, the idea that blindness brings you closer to, to God, to, to uh, essential things, and, and, and uh, that you could not be or might not be distracted by, by uh, all sorts of pleasures of daily life. And this is what, what Mikhail Pselos actually implies when he writes after the blind, the horrible blinding of Romanos the organist. But uh, I wonder whether poor Romanos would agree with that. Uh, surely not, surely not, I'd say. Um, so uh, as far as I know, I don't know of any blind monk or something uh, really telling about his experience of, of being blind either. No. There's a case of a in um, uh, Anna Komnini who's writing in the Alexiad um, about mm-hmm. someone who had been blinded for participating in a previous conspiracy or something like that. I can't remember his name right now. I think maybe it was one of the sons of Romanos actually. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and he had in his blindness, uh, sort of retired, become a scholar. Yes. And he, I guess he had people reading to him and had developed mm-hmm. quite an expertise in a number of topics that way. Yeah. And she yeah. talks about it. Yeah, but he never speaks for right. himself. Yeah, so there's, of course, there's the there's, um, fifth century, I guess, uh, Didymus the Blind. So according to one tradition, he became blind at the age of four. And uh, it is actually said that he learned how to read and to write just by touching wax tablets in which the the letters were kind of incised and he could just feel the letters and he managed to learn to read and write and he became also a famous scholar. And so his nickname is Didymus the Blind, but also he, so he has written uh, lots of treatises, which we still have, but as far as I know, he never uh, reveals anything about the experience uh, of being blind or his experience of being blind. Yeah, what mm-hmm. other ways did uh, people cope with disabilities uh, that you know of, uh, especially even like loss of a limb or something like that? Um, I would say that actually people just, this sort of, managed to go on with their lives, you know, and, and there are all sorts of, of, of practical um, solutions. Um, so Didymus the Blind is, of course, an obvious example. We have some, very few, but we have some indications of um, people uh, being uh, deaf-mute and possibly married, which is, of course, possible. And, and so in, in, in a way, they would just 
carry on with their daily lives. Um, and there is, of course, also the instance of, of uh, prosthetics. Um, we don't have too much. Um, archaeologists every now and then find something which might indicate like a leg, which was actually used after an uh, amputation, so a kind of prosthetic leg. But <laughs> we're not always sure whether this was something like an ornament which belonged to the, uh, to the grave, or whether it really uh, means that the person who was there actually had a prosthesis like this. So, uh, talking about prosthesis, which is a field which has not been studied properly yet, um, I think of, of uh, two examples, of course. So I would start with, with a Roman example and then with a, with a famous Byzantine example. So for the Romans, uh, there's the case of Marcus Sergius Celius, who was um, actually, um, he had a, um, um, uh, so he had a hand replaced, a prosthesis, uh, part of the arm, and surely the hand. And uh, it means that he could only use uh, his left hand. And then there are some Roman authors, like Pliny the Elder, who wrote his encyclopedia, the Naturalis Historia. And he has that story about political opponents blaming uh, Sergius Silius because of the fact that, as a praetor, he had to take part in sacrifice also, but doing this with your left hand could be a bad omen. Right, but sinister. The Second Punic War. This is in times of crisis. And we never read that um, our praetor had to resign from the praetorship because of this disability. Um, he had a political career before and after. So this is very much ad hoc, of course. Your opponents just use this in specific circumstances, circumstances, situation of crisis, and then they use it just to say, you can't participate in the sacrifices. For the Byzantine times, there is again our rhinotmetos, so the uh, the uh, amputated nose of Justinian II. Now, this is an intriguing story, not only for prosthesis, but also for just coping with it and um, possibly also trauma. So it is said uh, that this emperor actually was um, expelled from the throne, so he had to go in exile. Uh, went to the Black Sea, and before that, he was uh, he had to uh, suffer the, the cruel punishment of uh, cutting off of his tongue, so the glossotomia, and the cutting off of his nose, so uh, the rhinotomia. Um, then he just leaves, goes in exile, but he comes back. Turns out to be a real cruel emperor. So some have interpreted this in a psychological way, so this is a guy coping with his own trauma and therefore being like, even more cruel than, than uh, the ones who just inflicted the punishment on him. But the striking thing is that for the second reign, to say so, of Justinian II, nothing is said about a possible inability or difficulty to speak, which you might imagine, of course, when, you're cut, when your tongue has been cut out. And uh, nothing is even said about the nose and the amputation. And then there's a later source, but this is almost 200 years later, mentioning this emperor having a golden nose. 
which I found so interesting because almost in the same time, um, uh, something is said about one of the um, closer friends of, of the prophet, prophet Mohammed, who also would have had a golden nose. And uh, if you um, believe uh, medical doctors who have kind of studied this, um, in the past, uh, also starting from, from ancient India already, there are examples of people having sort of prosthesis uh, as a, a golden or a metal nose. So perhaps our Justinian II just coped with it uh, like this. So I, um, when I read your article, I went and I tracked down the uh, sources for Justinian's golden nose. Um, it mm -hmm. is Agnellus of Ravenna. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and who's writing later, yes. Um, mm -hmm. But the, So the interesting thing is, and I don't know that anybody's made this connection, when Justinian was executed, mm -hmm. the, his um, successor emperor, this uh, Philippicus, yes. sent Justinian's mm -hmm. head to Ravenna to yeah. be displayed there, and from Ravenna it was sent on to Rome. Okay. And this information is also in Agnellus. Um, yeah. In other words, the Ravenese might have actually seen his head uh, as it was passing through uh, Italy. Right. Like, That's I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe they actually saw it and, oh, there's a golden nose on it. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, that's... Uh, as far as I know, Agnellus doesn't really say that he has seen it or something, but it, no. it's an interesting thought, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for this. So what I found striking was that parallel I found, which I wrote in the article also about one of the uh, closest friends of, of Mohammed and about the fact that this uh, golden nose uh, is attested also in other cases. But the interesting thing is, of course, why would the contemporary writers never mention this? And as you may know, our research, it just leads us to many, many people and, and, and many interesting events also. And I remember once having talked to um, a, a medical doctor, a surgeon, and I asked him about what would happen if uh, people lose their tongue. Could they actually speak? And he said, yes, they can. And there seem to be also cases of people uh, with tongue cancer who afterwards sort of learn to speak again and I also for, found some instances where it is said that uh, the cutting of the tongue was perhaps not done um, this is a cruel thing to say but uh, not very profoundly not entirely so that that uh, parts of the tongue would, would uh, well just remain in place and that afterwards you could just speak again yeah? Uh, so this doctor told me it's, it's horrible because it just doesn't stop bleeding. It will bleed for hours and hours, but normally you won't die unless there's an infection. But, but uh, otherwise, uh, well, this kind of restores and, and, and it is not impossible that you could just speak again. Oof, gruesome. Uh, I had to explain why I asked <laughs> such gruesome questions, but uh, yes, yeah. he was the husband of a master's student of mine who graduated, so we, we could discuss that. Um, uh, this was interesting, and he said that, unfortunately, these things, so, so people losing a tongue, every now and then it happens, and there are solutions. Uh, so I found another case for you. Mm, tell I me. Think, yeah, this is a recent archaeological discovery in Italy. Um, mm -hmm. It's in a Lombard cemetery of around 600 AD, so this mm -hmm. is... Uh, when the Lombards have just invaded Italy and they're fighting yeah. the, um, the Byzantine forces there. Mm -hmm. They found a skeleton 
of a man who had lost, I think, his right um, hand and had mm-hmm. replaced it with a blade mm-hmm. that he attached to, I don't know, the stump of his forearm. Mm-hmm. And they also found from the evidence of his teeth that he had been using his teeth to tighten the leather straps that attached this blade to his arm. Gosh, right. I've never heard that. I'm just sitting here at my desk and there is a book by edited by Jane Dracott. It's on prosthesis in antiquity. And I know I've seen an article, so I just saw it here again. It's called Evidence on a La- of a Late Antique Amputation in a Skeleton from Hemmerberg. But this is, must be a different one um, because it's rather about a leg. So indeed, every now and then these, these things are found. And, and um, this goes back to what I said in the beginning. It's all pieces of a, of a puzzle, you know, and, and, and we, uh, archaeology can be very useful and helpful also to, to, to sort of um, expand and, and build our image also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now I'll send you the reference. The, there's some links Thank to you. some online Thank articles. You so much. Right. Now, that, now that we're on a roll here, I, I actually thought of another case. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's similar. Well, it's not a prosthetic. There's a story about a monk and a hermit in uh, Egypt mm-hmm. and his mode of, you know, self, you know, punishment was to stand forever. Like he would never lie yeah. down. He would never sit yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, uh, and this, the text I think that we have says, I can't remember his name now, oh, something like Mark or something like this that eventually he just couldn't sit down. And I think we have his skeleton. Um, He was buried and he was found, and there's a German article on his skeleton. And apparently the vertebra had fused together in a number of places. uh, Such that this person could not lie. If he lay down, he couldn't get up again. Yeah, yeah. Um, So these are actually these. So that's why we always need also uh, medicine, you know. So you could say this is perhaps a a rhetorical exaggeration, but this is actually a bodily thing which which uh, which can happen. Um, Yeah, that's an interesting example. Thank you. I, uh, if I may come with another example, I remember that for the. So Roman epigrams, as, as Byzantines also, but uh, Roman epigrams are also often very cruel and, and just referring to bodily features and so on and so on. And there's, uh, there's a joke about, uh, I think it's an old woman, and she just sneezes and she, uh, she kind of sneezes out her own teeth. And uh, I actually asked this to a, a medical doctor or a dentist, and she said, yes, this is possible. There are cases like this. So people every now and then sneeze and lose their teeth. Uh, so which would be the same as, as your monk, you know? So, so uh, it's not just rhetorics like if you don't want to uh, sit down anymore, uh, well, it won't, poss- won't be possible anymore. No, there is something bodily behind this. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Christian, so we're almost out of time. Um, I have one mm. final question. Um, yeah. And that is, were, were eunuchs considered disabled in Byzantium? Yeah, that is a very interesting question. Um, um, first of all, if you just think about the demography of the ancient world, but for me, this ancient world can go up till the Industrial Revolution. This is a demographic regime where it's just important to procreate, to have children, 
Yeah? Um, and whether you read uh, Persian sources or, or Byzantine sources, Arab sources, Greek, Roman, it's always there. There's the, the necessity also of procreation. So this really makes you a man. And also for a woman, of course, it's, it's utterly important that, that you can have children. So I would say if, if this possibility is not there uh, for you, then of course it can be an, an impairment or an impediment whatsoever. On the other hand, because the answer needs to be nuanced, um, this is of course a culture where asceticism is very much valued. You have thousands of people opting for the life of being a monk, so not procreating. This is kind of unique. So uh, Islamic sources would say these Christians, these Rome, yeah, the Rome and, and, and which are basically the Byzantines, what are they doing? These monks, they, they, they don't have it. So you will find this in, in the Buddhist tradition and then in Christian traditions, but many traditions do not have it. Now, in a culture where this uh, uh, fact that you don't procreate is accepted, um, things can be kind of smoother for, for eunuchs. Um, at the same time, as we well know, of course, they, um, they were often in palaces and they had very important functions. Um, and they were even uh, considered as good lovers because for the women, there was no danger of, of, of getting pregnant. Right. And uh, medical writers, also Byzantine medical writers, would say that it is, uh, that it is possible uh, to have some uh, sexual activity or, or even to have like something like an erection and so on without being able to, 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 to like really uh, procreate. Um, so I would say that, of course, from a human point of view, there is that impediment because you can't ever have children. But this was kind of softened by the fact that this choice was accepted for many people and also by the fact that, that uh, if you survive the operation, that you could have quite a comfortable life at the Imperial Palace. Yeah, and, or be a bishop or a patriarch of Absolutely. Constantinople. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of strange, also because in in uh, some other traditions it is said that that a priest needs to be a man. Really, I don't know how this is now in Orthodox tradition, but I I recently wrote a small article on does a priest have to be perfect, and I uh, managed to read some uh, canonical law, so Roman Catholic law, where it is said actually explicitly that uh, that uh, a priest should be a man. Yeah, I think eunuchs were, for the most part, considered men in Byzantium. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just because you know there's a sort of physical difference or physical impairment in that regard, I don't think it led to most of them being considered not men. And yeah, uh, seeing as this is a a culture with a Roman template, there were options for them from the Roman tradition, such as adoption. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The, the Emperor Leo the Sixth. He has this law where he, I, I don't know that this ever of this ever being activated in practice. I don't know of any eunuchs in Byzantium who adopted anybody, but he says that there's no reason why they should be prevented from having that form of a parent of being parents in that way just because they have the physical inability. To, okay. I don't know of any case uh, yeah. either, but but it's it surely I think in in the in in, in the laws uh, in but the basilica and all these laws they're, they're well they think of all these possibilities and yes it's of course starting from these Roman patterns and and this was absolutely possible when you were just childless regarding whatever reason you could adopt. So why not for, yeah. for, uh, yeah. for a unit? That's a 
Could you tell me something, uh, Anthony, about the, well, well, for monks or priests, the, the um, obligation to have a beard? To, to have a, a, oh. A beard, which might be. Ob an obligation. I don't know that it was an obligation. Um, mm -hmm. You mean how this might have impacted? So just because for eunuchs, eunuchs? it would be uh, uh, difficult to have facial hair to say so. No, there, um, I've never heard of a eunuch uh, priest or bishop who had any kind of, who was challenged because he couldn't have a beard. No. Okay. No. Okay. No. Okay. no prosthetic beards. <laughs> no, 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 no. You have, well, coming back to our prosthetics, uh, what is, what are prosthetics, you know? So hair, of course, prosthetic hair is, 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 uh, exists in all traditions but i've never heard about the beard too um mm. but i was wondering because the uh, the latin medieval sources would often refer to greek priests having uh, these beards always huh? yes but you would say that it's not an obligation no so between the between the byzantines and the west and the catholic church there was the issue of beards was definitely a point of de mm. debate um yeah. but that's a that's a whole other question, um, and a friend of mine, Khadi Smithies, has written about that sort of brilliantly because it ties into the whole gendered way in which the two churches saw yeah. each other. Um, and it was a so in general, you know, the Catholic or Western polemic against Byzantium is that the Byzantines are these sort of effeminate and eunuchs and all of that. But it was a problem that it was the Byzantines who had the beards, whereas the Catholics would shave which sort of worked against that gendered polemic. And mm -hmm. so that created some anxieties, but no, I don't, I don't know that eunuchs were ever, mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, eunuch priests were ever challenged on that point. Because also some but, monk rules will, will sort of um, warn against uh, these Badless youth, you know, and uh, so the temptation of, of the boy. But then, uh, so for a monk, it wasn't really an obligation to have a beard. That's right. So that's no. You're, so you're exactly right. Good call. In 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 monasteries, the chief um, sort of sexual temptation, and I've done a um, a separate podcast episode with Stephen Morris on on precisely mm -hmm. this point. It was not you know women or younger men or boys or what or it was the beardless, which encompassed all of those categories. So yeah. the idea is that the, the uh, sort of the spiritual life, the emotional life of the monk was challenged mostly by the temptation po posed by yeah. young yeah. men, boys, yeah. eunuchs, and women all together. Like it, it, it right. was no distinction. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Christian, I think uh, we're out of time. This, 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 is a, this is a fascinating discussion, and I think that it's going to um, be very interesting to the audience because there really is no discussions of these uh, topics outside of what you've done. And so I'm really glad to be putting it out there so that um, more people can, can see how a, a subfield is started. I hope people will uh, see it and, uh, and, and listen to it as an invitation to, because there's so many things to do still about uh, disabilities in the Byzantine Empire. So, so welcome, I'd say. All right. Okay. Thank you very much and, and take care. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.